Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano, and I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. Our assumption is that you... Our listeners have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in this podcast. And guys, as always, we've got merch. That hat's right. I don't know why I'm trying to sing like Stacy. So go check out our brand new website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. That always makes Stacy laugh. I don't know why. So like a radio announcer voice. I love it. Every few weeks, we'll do an audience participation episode just to answer your questions. So email us what you want to know at clearizefullheartspod at gmail.com. Today, we are talking about season one, episode 19, Ch-ch-changes. It was written by Jason Kadams and directed by Jeffrey Reiner. Here's our NBC television synopsis. With TMU knocking on Coach Taylor's door, Julie decides to make it very clear to her parents that she does not intend to move away from Dylan and Matt. We have an amazing guest with us today, the ridiculously talented Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, a.k.a. Angela Collette, mother of Tyra and Mendy Collette. So let's get into the highlights of this episode, and then we can talk with Dana. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Off the bat, first impressions, Jason coming into this room and there's a table of three or four men. I have crazy PTSD flashbacks of every audition I've ever walked into. It does. It, it, I, I was watching that scene and it reminded me of every audition I've ever had. What's the worst audition you've ever had, Stacey? Wow. Oh, there's, there was one time I, I was doing an audition for a big musical and I set down my sheet music for the piano player to play and he started playing and it was in the wrong key. And I was like, I can't. I can't sing this. I don't, I don't know what. So I looked completely unprepared and like such a doofus. Too high or too low? It was too low, but I have, <laughs> welcome to my story. I have relative perfect pitch and it's really oh. hard for me to change keys because of it. It's not a blessing. It's more of a curse. It's a curse. I'm, I'm cursed to have perfect pitch. It's relative. <laughs> okay. I don't know what that means. Um, you guys, I think at some point in our audience participation episodes, we'll get to some of Derek's audition stories because 
The throwing open the window, I think, is my favorite. I've got a few good ones. Yeah. You've got great ones. <laughs> okay, but also they say come back in four years. Honestly, I thought about it again. And this child has been paralyzed for mere months. We're maybe four or five months into him being paralyzed. Yeah, it's a little blunt. And the, I mean, the reality is I think you would still be competing. You know what I mean? You just wouldn't be competing on like the, the U.S. national team at that point in time. You know, so right. don't they have like a, a D-League? Yeah, I would imagine. I would think. I don't know. I mean, oh, you wow. don't just compete every four years, right? But yeah, it's it's a little harsh. To say the least. Harsh and staying harsh because then Herc says you're not on the team because you're not comfortable in the chair yet. There is something in that scene, though, and, and you know how much I love Herc. We both love Herc. Herc is blunt. Uh, he calls it like he sees it. And it's frankly what Jason needs to hear. But Jason says something in that scene where he says to Herc, I needed this. And he goes, AQB, everybody needs this. So like all those guys need this. You know what I mean? All these guys are relying on this. It's the thing that keeps them going. So you're not alone in that. And I think that that was kind of a wake-up call to Jason. Yeah, you're not alone in that. And you're also not that special here in this room. Not anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's harsh. He got some harshness thrown at him. There's uh, a scene in here where they talk about me. And they say that I barely got my GED. And I would like to tell you and all the listeners right now that that is not a thing I knew about my character. Are you surprised by that? Definitely no. But it <laughs> is interesting when we come in as guest stars. We're not given the scripts for the episodes we aren't in. So if something yeah. is said about my character, it's information I don't have. I definitely have had that on other shows where they had to like totally fill me in on stuff that had happened where they talked about my character a lot when yeah. I wasn't there for four and five episodes, you know, because there were times where you were gone for four episodes and then you come back and all this stuff has happened. They're like, oh, it's what happened in episode four. And I'm like, I have no clue what happened in episode four. I wasn't in episode four. I didn't get a script for episode four. Yeah, I would like the information, though. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, the fun things about being a guest star sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Again, because I'm the Jason Street in this part where um, I'm not that special. So like, I'm not the first thought in anybody's mind. Aww. But now it works. Yeah, I think that makes sense for Mindy. I don't think she's really like a school person. Stacey, if it makes you feel any better, you're like mm -hmm. the 24th thought in my mind. I'll take it. There you go. <laughs> uh, so Tim shows up at school. This was a cool scene. I thought Tim shows up at school to pick up Bo and there's a bunch of like bullies picking on him. And Tim threatens to punch a hole in a kid's chest and rip his heart out, which I thought was just hysterical. It always makes me cackle when I see that scene. But it's also a really nice, it's a, it's a messed up moment, but it's also a really nice moment because you're kind of seeing this, like maybe the father that Tim never had is kind of poking his head in there. And you see that like Tim would probably make a, a good father, even though he, he may not be going about it the right way. Uh, yeah. And I love later when he talks about he understands it. He's like, no, I was the bully. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's why he understands how to talk to a bully. I don't <laughs> think those kids are going to mess with Bo again. Yeah, because she's saying something like, you know, if he just ignores it, he's like, that's not going to work. I was a bully. <laughs> no one work. ignored it. <laughs> that's really good advice. <laughs> and then Jason kisses Tattoo Girl. Yeah. Yeah. I like her. I like them together, but he's engaged. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a good move. But, you know, Stacy Stonehenge too is a uh, it's a very romantic place. Have you been? No, never been. I don't know where it it is. I'm assuming Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's not far. It's in the hill country. I want to say like near Fredericksburg. How did we never go there? I don't know. And you know, Kitch and I used to ride motorcycles all the time through that area, and I don't know how we never came across it. You know what is weird, though, if you go through hill country, there's a lot of like animal preserves out there. So you'll be riding along on a motorcycle 
in the middle of nowhere. There's no cars on the road. And off to the right, there's just a bunch of giraffes running around. There's an elephant sanctuary. Yeah, and zebras. And you're like, what? One of my favorite bars is in Hill Country. It's called The Llama. And while you're outside playing like outside games and having drinks, looking over, y'all, Hill Country is gorgeous in Texas. There's just free roaming llamas everywhere. And they'll like come up and snack out of your hand. And it's very, very cool. It's nuts. Like I said, you'll be riding along. There's giraffes, there's llamas, there's gazelles, there's zebras, all these wild animals out there in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And it's it kind of takes your breath away because you just, I don't know about you, but when I'm riding around, I just don't expect to see a giraffe coming around the corner. It doesn't feel like Texas all of a sudden, especially also because there's hills and Texas doesn't have hills. Yeah. Except there. It's really harsh to tell your own child that they can't go to college. Yeah, it's a harsh scene, but Angela's had a harsh life. And I think what she's doing is that she's refusing to let Tyra get her hopes up out of fear that her dreams will probably get crushed. It seems like Angela, when she was younger, had aspirations and ideas about what life could possibly be, and it didn't work out for her. So there's this part of her that's like, don't dream and you won't have your feelings hurt. And also a little, uh, animosity is the wrong word, but at Tammy for like filling her daughter's head full of these dreams and ideals when she pulls her out of the house and stuff. 100%. Not having it. So buddy to his wife. (laughs) The only, the like surefire way to make sure somebody isn't calm is to tell them to be calm. I hate it when people say that. <laughs> yeah, Buddy shows up at the house with a uh, photo album that he had put together for, for Pam, thinking that this was going to somehow like win her back into his good graces or whatever. And it backfires. And then on top of it, he says that Lila was helping him make the, the photo album, which really wasn't true. Lila's like, dad, don't involve me in this. I'm not trying to get in the middle of it. And what winds up happening is we find out through Pam that this is not the first time that Buddy's ever cheated on her, which is a big bit of information, especially for Lila. And you can just imagine what that does to Lila. This whole entire first season for Lila, it's everything that she thought she knew about her life. She grew up in this perfect family with no problems, and all of it is coming crashing down. Her relationship with Jason is crashing down. So it really is just this idealized life that this girl had, it's all falling apart. I wonder if there's maybe a little bit too of, I don't want to become my dad. I had an affair and I don't want to follow in his footsteps. Possibly. But I found the the photo album, I get that maybe Buddy did it with good intentions, but I found it so cringy and so manipulative. Oh, it's 100% manipulative. And that's why Pam calls him out on it. You know, because I think maybe in the past, there was some gesture that he made and that was, it just made everything okay for the time being. Mm. And Pam kind of let it slide. And Pam's like, she said enough. I like this Pam. I like Pam this episode. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, Pam saying that in front of Lila is definitely her putting her foot down. Because up until this point, Lila had no idea that her dad was a cheater. She basically says to her in that scene, Mom, it was one time. Anyone can make a mistake. And it's like, no, it's not one time. Mm-hmm. It's multiple times. I really feel for Lila. And Minka does just yeah. such a wonderful job in these scenes. Minka does quiet internal struggle really well. Yeah. This is going to sound blunt. I'm going to pull a hurt here. Mm-hmm. Julie's being a brat. Yes. I'm going to get mean, in trouble for this. No, 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 no. I don't think you're going to get in trouble. I think she's she's a teenager and they're all brats to a certain degree. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I also 100% get what she's going through here. When she has that speech with Coach at the end of the episode where, where she tells him she never wanted to live in Dylan and now she's found a place in Dylan, it breaks my heart. It's like a lot of the characters, especially the younger characters in this show. I think they mean well. I think their intentions are good. But I think that they don't know how to express themselves or they don't know how to act on on their emotions. 
And I think that this is kind of what's going on with Julie in this in this situation is it comes across as bratty, but the reality is I don't think she has the ability to say until the end, dad, I'm happy here. I'm tired of moving. I want to be in this place. And so the way she reacts is by being a little bit of a pain in the butt. To be fair, I was exactly the same way when I was her age. Then I had completely forgotten about this scene, but that's Joey. You guys, we've talked about Joey on this episode before. He'll come back later as the ferret-loving guy Rastin. And so I think I've put together in my mind that this gas station attendant is Guy Rastin, but it's Guy Rastin before he found his love of ferrets and meth. Yes. So in this scene, what's going on is Street goes up there to buy some booze and the gas station attendant won't sell it to him. The person playing that role is my friend Joey, who I went to college with and was also my roommate in New York for a little while Mm -hmm. and then lived next door to me in LA for 15 years or so. Yeah. But one of my best friends on the planet, but Joey's also plays Guy Rastin in later episodes in season two. And I kind of know a little backstory here of what happened. Joey had called me and said, hey, man, I got this audition for Friday Night Lights. He'd had a couple at this point in time. I gave him some pointers. He went in there, got the job. And Jeffrey Reiner loved him so much. Jeffrey Reiner was one of our directors. Jeffrey loved him so much on this show that when this other part came up a couple, like a year later, he was like, I think this guy might be right for it. Joey came back in for that part. And Joey happened to have like massively big sideburns for another Mm -hmm. play that he'd been working on at that point in time. And he looked different enough that I don't think most of our audience put two and two together. And they were like, yeah, just cast him in that part. I think you're right. But it's kind of a fun moment because I always go, hey, there's, there's Joey. I always forget that he's in that scene. It totally shocked me in a very good way. So he comes back and has a bigger part in season two, but is a completely and totally different character. And not a good one. No, he's kind of a schmuck. (laughs) Yeah, all that schmuck. These kiddos on the field, this whole episode, Jason Kadams, he just like knows how to grab right onto my heart and make me feel things. Yeah, he's a a good heartstring tugger, Jason Kadams. It's really just a beautiful scene with these guys and getting this group of people together that you don't necessarily pair off together. I mean, Smash and Tim up until this point have kind of been at odds with each other. And so this is the first time you're kind of seeing these two hang out. But it's the first time we we get all four of them together. And of course they would have at the very least been good acquaintances, if not friends, just because of their time playing football together. I love the environment, Texas, once again, seeing that sunrise, which honestly they probably shot at sunset, but I could be wrong. Yes, that seemed like a dusk. It's just a beautiful scene. I uh, love those moments. Those moments. And then Kadams just keeps on going when my mom takes Tyra to the father-daughter dance. Yeah, oh, that is a great so moment. so beautiful. We're going to have Dana on the show later. So I can't wait to talk to Dana about that scene in particular because I love that scene and I love Dana's performance in it. But then we cut over to uh, uh, Lila. Stacy, what's going on with Lila now? Holy auto body damage. That is so much money. <laughs> <laughs> We said that Lila's world is kind of crumbling down around her, and uh, she takes it upon herself to uh, basically let her father know she's none too pleased with uh, all of his cheating. She goes up to Buddy Garrity Motors and gets in a car. I think it's her car. And just demolishes the place. I mean, drives through a window. I'm assuming she had a stunt driver, but that would be really fun to do. (laughs) Yes, it would. I don't think there's a chance in hell that they ever would have given me the keys to do something like that. We've already discussed on this show that Justin Reamer, who was our stunt coordinator, was not a big fan of my driving skills. If you're driving, yes, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think they would have given me the keys. I just want to beat up a car at some point in my career. Okay, this neighbor of, of yours, 
I'm just going to call her Bad Idea Bear. That kid is in high school. Stacy, the heart wants what the heart wants. No, don't be an apologetic. I'm kidding. We used to have a saying when I was younger that said 17 will get you 20. And that's basically what this means. 17 year olds will get you 20 years in prison. So what are you doing, neighbor lady? But it's... I don't know if I want to say suspension of disbelief when it comes to Friday Night Lights. There are a lot of people on this show that have relationships with older men and women. But trust me when I tell you this, Stacey, there are a lot of married grown-ass women out there Mm -hmm. that would be completely and totally happy to trade places with Jackie in this situation. I can't tell you how many married women, friends of mine, their wives would say to me, you know, Taylor's on my short list. Oh God, I hate a short list. Well, it makes me so uncomfortable. I bet there's a lot of listeners out there that are sitting there nodding their heads right now while their husbands are sitting right next to them going, (laughs) I bet you money. Okay, to end, I enjoyed Julie's impassioned speech in the car. I liked hearing what her actual issues are, and she finally could be vocal about it and find the vocabulary for it. But I also love that it didn't automatically make Coach say no to TMU, but he was like, you have a voice in this family. I'm taking it into consideration. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, he is still the father in the situation. I mean, I know I say this all the time, but it's another thing I love about Friday Night Lights. On a lot of TV shows, the kid would have this impassioned speech and the father would mm. go, you know what? I just never saw it that way because he's just a yeah. bump on a log dummy who hasn't lived a life. Coach has lived a life. Coach nods his head and he takes it into consideration, but that doesn't mean that it's going to change anything. She's still a 15 or 16-year-old girl. She's not dictating what this family does. And as we see in later episodes, he does take it into consideration. I thought you were going to say he does leave and go coach at TMU. And I was like, I don't remember that. He does. Wait, does he really? Yes. Derek, you have to remember, I don't watch this. I just found out I only barely got a GED. (laughs) All right, let's let's move on. Let's talk to Dana here. Yeah, she knows more about their show than I do. Yes, this is probably true. (laughs) everyone. We're back with the amazingly talented Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, who plays Angela Collette. She is one of my favorite actors on Friday Night Lights and literally one of the coolest people you will ever meet. We are so very thrilled to have her with us today. Our listeners will know Dana from her work outside of Friday Night Lights on such films and television shows as Mrs. Sofal, Hitchhiker, Crime Story, The Little Drummer Girl, Beverly Hills Bunts, As the World Turns, Seinfeld, The X-Files, The Single Guy, Sex in the City, NYPD Blue, Law and Order, The Night We Met, All My Children, Without a Trace, Boston Public, The Battle of Shaker Heights, Boston Legal, Fast Food Nation, Law and Order Criminal Intent, The Good Guys, Law and Order SVU, Parkland, Winter in the Blood, Nashville, Emergence, Chicago Med, Grey's Anatomy, Bull, Walker, and of course, Fletch, opposite Chevy Chase, and Tombstone, opposite Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Bill Paxton, and Powers Booth. Dana, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you. So I'm going to go ahead and start right off the top and just ask you, how did you get into acting? Holy moly. Okay, so this is back in the olden days. And so I grew up in New York City and I had always wanted to go to art school. That was my whole bent, my whole life. And I was very, which a lot of actors will say, very internal, very solitary, only drew pictures, painted and read books. And that's it. I couldn't socialize. I had no friends, blah, blah. I went to art school. I started at Parsons School of Design, wonderful art school in New York. And sort of halfway through, I realized that I couldn't spend 
my time alone in a room for the rest of my life. I had to figure out how to be in the world a little bit more. So I took an acting class at the now, I don't know if it's even still exists, HB Studios in New York, a very well-known acting school. And I, something happened when I did a scene and had an audience and a an actor telling me trying to fit me into the to the reality of uh, living through a character and something about that triggered my ability to be able to go through a character became apparent quickly and I took to it and I switched schools and I ended up at Sarah Lawrence College which had a great theater department I started there and then I got hired by Hollywood kind of quickly before I'd even gotten through a semester of school. So it all happened very fast. It was a big yes beam from the universe, wow. you know? Yeah, it was fast. The, the, this, it actually, there's more there. I don't know, we don't have time, but it's, it, it happened way too fast in, in a way. Yeah. So that was the start. Oh, it happened essentially, that switch for you happened in your college years. Yeah. Yep. Wow. What about music for you? Because guys, listeners at home, Dana has an insanely beautiful voice. Was that something you had done like solitary by yourself too? Or did that come later? That was so much later. I wanted to sing since I was a child. One of my earliest memories is of being about five years old, listening to The Sound of Music or something like, I think it was The Sound of Music, singing, 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 singing. And saying to my mother, when I become a singer, will you come hear me sing? Like I have this memory of that. I was so little and I didn't start doing it in front of people till I was in my thirties, like my mid thirties. I was so terrified of doing it. Had always been told you should sing, you should sing, you should sing. And I never did. And then I got to be like 30 four or something. And I thought, if I don't do this, man, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to hate myself. And I just did it. And I literally went to Joe's pub in New York City. (gasps) I had no band. I had no anything. I went to Joe's pub, like the owner I happened to know, Serge (gasps) Becker. And I was like, look, Serge, I want to do a gig here. And he was like, well, okay. Uh, He's... (laughs) an accent. I'm not just doing that. Okay. Uh, what's the act? And I was like, well, I, I sing jazz and blues and, and sort of Americana and I have a great band. And he was like, that sounds so sexy. Yes. Yeah, so cool. Talk to, you know, Jose and put you on the schedule. And I was like, okay. And I got booked at Joe's pub just because I talked my way in. And then I had to find a band and figure out how to sing in front of people, which I did. And so for those it, of you who aren't <laughs> familiar with like Joe's pub is actually like attached to the public theater. And it mm-hmm. might sound like a crappy little venue, but I mean, it is an amazing venue in New York City where some of the like biggest names in music have performed. So the fact that that was the first place you sang, yes, I'd be that, like, I'd, I'd sang yeah. in my shower before I went anywhere near Joe's Pub. But yeah, yeah it was terrifying gosh. and exhilarating. And I just, and you know, I was terrible the first time out, but I had a great, I did have a great band and I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good actor. So I just kind of acted my way through that. <laughs> and then it just went from there and it, you know, it just was, it became a huge part of my life after that. That's so brave of you at 35, I think you said, like to jump into that. Cause I, I mean, at that point in your life, you've kind of already set in stone who you are and the type of person you are and the things that you're, you're comfortable with. So that's a pretty big leap of faith at 35 years old. Good on you. I'm grateful it happened because some of our favorite nights were when we were working in Austin and we would go hear you at the Continental Uh, Club. The entire cast would go and you would be singing there. That was a fun time. Those are fun times, y'all. In addition to you being an incredible actor, you're also a jazz enthusiast, which we just discussed, but you're also a brilliant acting teacher. So could you tell us about your journey as an acting teacher and how that kind of came about and what your approach to, to acting is? Okay, I 
studied with a woman named Sandra Sikat, and she's a very a sort of renowned teacher. She's gotten, I think she's in her 80s now. I'm not really sure. I think she's still working, but she has basically passed on her whole legacy to her daughter, Greta Seacat, who I went to college with, which is how I met Sandra. Sandra teaches a technique that combines Stanislavskian method acting with Jungian dream analysis. And I'm going to stay really lame in here because <laughs> it's complicated and, and yeah. takes up too much time. But basically, the idea is when you play a part, when you get a script and you have a part that you're going to play, you look at the script and the story and the character as if you're in a dreamscape. So let's say I get a script. It's called Friday Night Lights. The character is Angela Colette. She is X, Y, and Z as described by the script. She's a single mom. She's a little bit out there. She has two daughters. So I get the lay of the land. I see who that character is interacting with. And then I basically, again, this is very layman. If you understand Jungian dream analysis, you take the script, you take the story as if it's a dream. Then you figure out with certain exercises that she's developed, you do actual dream work, which is where you attach your subconscious life to the life of the character. So you get all your own symbols and dreams and language for the character through dream work. It's hard to explain in a few minutes, but basically, if I were going to be coaching you, you come to me with your character and your, your script, we then do dream assignments. We actually do dream work where I give you assignments, we get the dreams, we break it down as it relates to the story and the character. So you know as an actor where you are going. Every beat of the scene, there's never a shot that you're winging it. You're not going to be doing anything that's rote or, or like anyone else because you're using your own subconscious language through your dreams to attach to the script and the character. Kirsten Dunst, who I can yeah. traverse this into FNL territory because guys, she's yeah. married to Jesse Plemons, is big to, into dream work. And when she, she was... She studies with my teacher. That's mm -hmm. my teacher. Yes. When she was preparing for Fargo season two, she had a dream that she was in the Scooby-Doo gang and she was talking <laughs> to her teacher about like, I don't understand this. What does this mean? And she was like, well, like physicalize it out for me. And she started, you guys can't see me on the video, but I look a little like a Muppet, but it's why the character, her character in Fargo 2 kind of like, when and she goes walks, like she's this. very bouncy. And like, yes. that's that's where yes. it came from. And that's, it just makes, that makes my heart happy. That's, that's the dream work. That's my teacher. That's Greta. That's who I yeah. went to school with. And so th that's, so she got Kirsten to, they figured that out with movement and how that attached for her to the character. So that enervated, that becomes the character's physicalization. Oh, you I see in uh, Power of the Dog, I don't know if you've seen that, when she puts the gloves on after she tells the natives uh, to take the skins, that's dream work. You can tell, I can tell when she puts yeah. the gloves on, she's having a, she's had a very specific relationship to that through the dream work. So it just means that you're very specific. It's deep, y'all. Yeah, it's deep. So, so how, did you, how did you joining FNL come about? I mean, was it an audition? Was it an offer? How did it? Yeah, no. Oh, so I had moved down to Austin 
pretty recently before that audition. And um, I had cut ties with, you know, everything. I moved down for a relationship with my then boyfriend who was so hot and he got hired to teach at UT at the end of he was writer director. And I moved down there and cut ties with my fancy agents. And I was like, well, I'm just going to sing. Screw it. I'll just go to Austin, whatever. I'm in love. And cut to, I found a wonderful agent there, Heather Collier, who I adore. And she just sent me. I got an audition for Friday Night Lights, which I didn't know anything about, except there was a movie of it. And I thought, oh, football thing. Ugh, what do I yes. know about this? You know, like, oh my God, really? And then, and it was to read for the part of Tammy Taylor. And so I thought, well, it's a lead. It's Pete Berg and okay. And I read it and it's wonderful. And I think, okay, this is a big deal. Who? And I go in and I read for Pete and goes well. And he says right off the bat, he's like, look, that you're wonderful, blah, blah. He said, I want Connie Britton for this part. There's nobody else who's going to play this part. You're great, but no way. I'm just telling you that right now. I'm doing everything I can to get her. this." And I was like, I get it. I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, oh my God. And he goes, but I'm going to find something for you. We're going to get you on the show. And I was like, great. That was like the great, because you read for things all the time that they're going to get somebody super fancy and wonderful and you know it, but you just want to do a good job and have a good time and it's your job. So that was the best outcome for me was him saying, we're going to find something. And they did. This part came up and it was very like, okay, here it is. But it wasn't a shoe in LA wanted fancier people whose names shall remain nameless. (laughs) And I was like, really? Her? And honestly, Heather Collier and and Jeffrey Reiner went to bat for me. They swung hard. And so it happened. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. I can't, because I, I know who the other person is. I, I can't imagine how different all of our worlds in the show would have been if it had gone that way. Um, what did you know about Angela before coming into your first episode? I knew really only that they were introducing Tyra's family, that they were slowly kind of with each character bringing in parents and sort of family background. So I was actually initially more interested in Tyra and figuring out, you know, how to be of service to that story. And so what I got was that she was a single mother. She was a mess. Well, I mean, I'm not judging her. I'm just saying she was struggling with her sets of things. I got that she was probably a woman who found herself in, um, in circumstances, life was kind of happening to her rather than her affecting life. In other words, she was probably the prettiest girl in her class, got married and pregnant too early, maybe had some boozy issues or whatever, party girl, suddenly has two daughters from two different people. I always thought it was two different fathers. And I we never said, never said, but I always thought so. So, you know, that she just is in this constant state of trying to stay afloat and that Tyra challenges that for her. Tyra and her relationship asks Angela to do better and to go a little further than just trying to survive. I remember one time you and I just sitting at lunch and we were talking about when, I love it when you say how to be of service to Tyra because coming on as guest stars, that's what we do. How do we, how do we serve and raise up the regular cast? And you Mm. said, Stace, I think our job is to show Tyra what she doesn't want to become. And something in that moment clicked for me. And I was like, that's exactly what what we're doing. Like, we don't need to be caricatures of ourselves, but Tyra wants more than us. And it was like a big pivotal moment for me. It was you like clicking on a light bulb for me. Yeah. When I watched, uh, I rewatched the show quite a bit lately, which was so heavenly. Oh my 
God, what a great show. Wow. <laughs> wow. I really feel like I'm so glad I'm not somebody who looks back a lot and looks at my past like, oh, that was wonderful. But boy, this show really does make one feel like, wow, that was very special. Up to this point, you had already worked on a ton of different projects. You had been leads in, in films and big, huge films at that. So what was the big difference between your experience before this and your experience coming on Friday Night Lights? Because obviously we've all discussed how different Friday Night Lights was, at least the process. I mean, multiple cameras, the ability to be able to improv. Yeah. What was your experience like? Well, I think it's probably going to be the same pretty much down the line. I mean, the first, the first scene that I had was in the Colette's house. And it was a scene where I get my boyfriend hits Bob. me. His name is Bob. Bob hits me. I Bob. hate his, Bob. My friend, Tim Guinea, bless his heart, um, <laughs> bashes me around. Tyra gets a poker and starts smashing him. I mean, it was chaos. And so Reiner, I think Reiner must have been directing. It must have been. I can't, I'd have to go back. But so I'm standing there like actressy, like, okay, where's my um Mark? And it was like, oh no, just just do it. We'll follow you. And I was like, uh, excuse me, what? Just go ahead and behave. Just do it like it would happen. And we'll follow you. And I was like, uh, you mean just? And it was the most unnerving. Like, yeah, it was the first time I was kind of like, oh, I don't have to stand somewhere so a light is correct or camera angles are correct. It's really just about behavior. Like yeah. it's going to be behavior that I would actually have. I had never experienced that. You're always in like a weird corner with a light saying, I want to break up with you, darling, weeping, but you can't leave your <laughs> arm. Your arm can't move off the counter. And you're like, What's, what am I doing in this corner having this speech? And it's all for the camera and for the lights, yeah. but you just get used to it. And so suddenly it was like, oh, I'm going to inform the camera to a degree. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know. 100%. And similarly with the improv, it was really like, wow, I can just, my character, I can just be in the moment here with this. So it was extraordinary. And, and it was hard to go back after shooting or in between doing other gigs when you're back to like, could you just take two steps to the left and then the don't say that line unless you're over there and like the lighting, <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh, it was so freeing as an actor because you didn't oh. have to think about any of that other crap anymore. All you had to do was be involved in that scene. And as you said, mm -hmm. just behave. Yes. You don't have to act. You just behave, just be. Yeah. And so the only, the work, that was important then it was so much the way I work which is all subconscious all kind of attaching to the other characters and behaving truthfully and being present with your circumstances that it was it was like a dream and I, I there are other other shows that I've loved and other things that I've loved to do and feel proud of and stuff but it's not, nothing like that from the beginning of your time on FNL you always brought a dignity to Angela even in like the most undignified moments whether it's you falling through the table. And despite a slew of bad decisions that Angela makes, I feel like I always sympathize with her. And in episode 19, we as an audience are caught watching the struggle play out between you and Tammy as to like Tyra's future. And in the end, it seems like your character puts her own ego aside and her own insecurities aside and does what's best for Tyra. Can you tell us what you remember from this episode and specifically what you recall about that beautiful 
father-daughter dance? Yes. So I, what I loved about that episode was sort of the juxtaposition of Tammy and Angela and the two mother figures and how Tammy is the loving, nurturing, functioning, successful mother in our eyes and ideal. And, and that Tyra is kind of gravitating toward her, rightfully so. It's a very healthy gravitation. And yeah, Angela is struggling with that. The thing that you just said, which is, Stace, that we're kind of the cautionary tale for Tyra. And in this episode, Angela gets to cop to that. She struggles with it. But at first, she's kicking and screaming about who are these people. And they're all up telling you things that you shouldn't, they shouldn't be filling your head with dreams. But then she backs off and thinks, why not let somebody fill your head with dreams. And yeah, it's an ego battle in a way. And it's a core thing for a mother, I would think, to, to put what's best for your child in front of what you think should be happening or what's best for you. And lots of mothers are narcissistic and they want their child to reflect them somehow. So this letting go thing, and this it's a, just a very loving gesture. This is all just about love to me, how she lets yeah. go of Tyra in this episode. Really, I mean, that scene in the scene right after you pick her up from Coach's house is you have that argument in the scene that in that idea that that you can't dream these things that you're thinking of, they're not going to happen. It just kind of shows us that Angela has kind of gotten to that place in her life where she's she's kind of given up on anything getting better. Yeah, that's the story she's told herself. You know, that's the, that's the party line for her. She's like that. It just doesn't get better. It's not going to get better. There's nothing you can do. You're, you know, that's the pile on from the world at large. Angela hasn't found the strength or support or doesn't have the resources or whatever to, to get past that mark. The only thing that's getting her past it is Tyra potentially to open her mind and change her thinking and, and change her behavior and put herself aside, you know, and her fear aside and her limitations aside for the moment to let Tyra shine or move forward. The other thing about the father-daughter dance that's so beautiful is, and what a great thing to write, to have these women, these women who I just love these ladies together, just kind of scrapping out there, you know, just sort of, and And that's where the resolution happens is at the father-daughter dance. Yeah. 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 Where it's, it's like, she is both parents. She's, and that's the beauty of it too. That's why the girls stick by her. She is a mess, but she is both. She's a, father and a mother to them as best she can be. And it's very, very loving. There's love, love, love. It's beautiful. People ask us a lot of times what one of our favorite moments on FNL is, and I have like such a plethora of them, but one that mm. I constantly go back to is us driving to the state game in the car. <laughs> and it's like, oh, Jesse, <laughs> you, me, Tyra, Lila, Grandma Saracen and Landry. And I feel like that writer's room just knew what they were doing. Cause essentially they piled us in a car and they were like, okay, just go. And like, we just wanted to make Landry's life miserable. <sighs> it was incredibly fun. I wonder if you have um, a favorite day of FNO. I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta be one of them for <laughs> sure. That was so hilarious. And Jesse is just so funny and divine. I, I, you know, that had to be a high point. Yeah, I mean, the father-daughter dance, the wedding, all oh, of God. <laughs> the wedding. <laughs> oh, you know, the baby shower. I, they're all so many. You know, so the, um, the not the baby shower. The um, what do you a call it? Tea party. Well, yeah, when you're getting married and stuff. What oh yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Or that bridal shower. The bridal shower. That's what they yeah, call it. Like a tea party or something. Yeah, <laughs> there were many, many, many. I remember we were shooting something in a restaurant one night and it was getting late. 
And we all had the giggles like yes. big We time. talked about this. What we was happening? It was Taylor Kitsch's fault. It was. I I it was, wasn't it? Improving stuff that they were like, don't. Because at don't. one point, Angela's supposed to reach for the check and Billy like goes, no, 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 don't <laughs> touch that. And he says, I think what was scripted is like, if you pick up that check, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> and I just kept ad-libbing stuff. And I was like, you pick up yeah. that check and I will punch you right in the neck. We couldn't pull it together. We just we couldn't. couldn't pull it together. And it was yeah. one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is fun. I, I don't know if I can, I'm going to recover from this. And I don't know if this, you know, like, this is really fun, man. Yeah. <laughs> we might get fired, but it's- We might get it. fired. <laughs> it's, really it. it's totally worth it. I can't even remember what director it was, but he was just in the corner. It was like four o'clock in the morning. Oh, they like, were we so just and also, I remember Reiner con- often shouting to me from somewhere, this isn't a comedy, Dana. Like, always <laughs> trying to yuck it up. You know, we were like, oh, but no, no, a little okay. bit. I know. Always going for the joke. Anyway, yeah, that was good times. That was so funny. And I couldn't for the life of me remember. It was one of those times. Like, you think about our job. I remember doing a show which you may have heard of uh, called Sex in the City back in the olden days. Mm-hmm. And we were in like the Astoria studios in the middle of Queens at like four in the morning. Everybody in our party clothes waiting for camera. And one of the ladies turned around and was like, don't we have the best job? <laughs> the whole city's asleep. <laughs> and we're out in the studio yes. in party clothes waiting for camera, chatting and giggling. And, you know, I just thought, yes, it really is. Great job. Wow. It is. Such it's an absurd job. profession sometimes because I'll find myself in some wardrobe <laughs> in the middle. like. There was one night I was in a creek at like four o'clock in the morning and it's like right. 20 degrees outside and there's a snake that's supposed to slither up on me and the snake handler, or the wrangler goes, hey man, he goes, if this snake tries to bite you, you just close your eyes. And I'm like, what? Nope. And he goes, well, snakes yep. don't like cold, so it might try to bite your eyes to so just close it. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I love my job. Nope. It's like the craziest stuff. Oh my God, it's so yeah, fun. It's nutty. That brings me to something. I am a huge Tombstone fan. And I know that this has nothing to do with Friday Night Lights. And I apologize to everyone. Bring it. I know that you were one of like three female leads in that movie. So can you talk? Just briefly yeah, about what testosterone stone. <laughs> testosterone um, stone. <laughs> yeah, I was one of three female leads and the rest were just the most fantastic bunch of men. But also that show, just as an FYI, I swore off dating actors after that show. I watched behaviors on that show with the actors, the male actors. I was like, wow, I'm doing a lot. And this is really making my eyes tear. They are out of control. I'm done. I don't think I dated an actor after that ever. It just scared Good me advice. sober. So you went really for the writer-director after this? Come on. They're quiet. These <laughs> yeah, and Alex is quiet and cool and chill. Yeah, and yeah. totally. Mo- mountain, Montana man. Yeah, no, uh, that was another high point. The great Val Kilmer is what I will just say about that. Val Kilmer, watching him work on that show was going, it was like going to school. And I've never had the experience, maybe you guys have, but I hadn't, where on your days off, you go watch Val work. Everybody's standing behind the camera watching because he's, he, it was just like, let's go watch, see what Val's going to do today. For me, that was a, a big part of the show, but also playing a, a, a drug addict. The work that I did for that with Sandra and with Greta sort of changed my bag of tricks a little bit. Being in, in the desert in Arizona was beautiful and a haunted place. The deserts always are haunted. So you don't have to do a whole lot of work. You just let that stuff come through you and suddenly you're 
spooky. <laughs> that boy, that was a dumb act. I really do more complicated things than that. No, but um, Stacy and I have talked about that numerous times on this show. I, I've come to start calling Austin, Texas in general, and just the state of Texas, our 12th man. There were times you would just be in an environment and you didn't have to do anything yeah. because the environment was in just informing yeah. how you felt. Yeah. And I think as actors, having that sensitivity to your environment and to the world and to people, and that's part of why we do it, because yeah. we are those creatures who feel those things. And you can just stand there openly in a desert in Arizona and let those things come through you and inform you. And your character's there walking and talking and existing. And that's yeah. why we are who we are and why we do what we do, because we we get that stuff. There's a lot of scenes that we do on Friday Night Lights that are just giant scenes. So like, it'll be a little, a scene of us here and then a scene of somebody else there, but we're still there, what we call like soft in the BG, soft in the background acting. And that's when you told me that on Tombstone, you guys called it cactus acting. We called it soft in the BG and cactus acting because there were so many people and so much stuff going on that I'd be, you know, we'd be in our corsets and our wool gowns and our hats and our fans. And we'd be so far like, okay, we're soft in the BG today or the BG. standing yeah. the background. Yeah. I call it cactus acting on every show I yeah. go to now. And I tell them that is from Tombstone. I've taken that with yep. me. I just want to tell you also, literally, I'm going to tell you what I wrote down in my notes for this interview. You were just talking about how watching Val Kilmer work was like going to school. And I know I've told you this before, but working with you in particular, the way that I did, you completely changed my style of acting. I was musical theater, very broad, very big. And the greatest lessons I ever got was just from working and watching you. And I feel like I got this college level education, but without paying for it. Like in actuality, I got paid for it. But even in the things that I do now, when I get auditions, I have this mentality of like, how would Dana approach this? How would Dana do it? And I take it in like all of my work, you completely changed who I am, especially in front of a camera. I, I mean, that's so, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, well, I would say right back at you, honey. I, oh, I mean, that's not you know, true, but thank you. No, but I mean, no, but I watch you in this show. I've been watching this show and I'm like, you know, you're not yourself. You're playing this, this other person. And that's, yeah. that's huge. Like, I don't mean that you're detached at all. I just mean you're playing somebody that is a specific person and it's not yeah. you. No, I, li- I, like you. To, I like to disappear a little bit. Yeah. It's, I think that's the joy of this business, but it's also kind of a disappointment because growing up in this business, there are actors that I've loved. You know what I mean? That I'm a huge fan of. And then you get the opportunity to work with them and you realize, oh, they're not the character that they play. Yeah, and It's not a slight on them. It's just, yeah. that, I mean, I don't drink anymore. And I've had so many people come up to me mm. and be like, hey, can you do a shot with me? And I'm like, dude, I'm not Billy Riggins I and I don't drink. Um, so, yeah. no. I didn't but know I, that. I Congratulations. Are, thank you. Yeah. It's been almost four years now. I got 11. Good for you. I can't believe uh, that. Cause we had a few nights back in Friday. Woo, night we did. <laughs> I went down happy and burning in flames and tequila. So that's what I good. said to somebody. I said it was fun until it wasn't fun anymore. And then that's it, right. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, right. But we did have some good times back in the day. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I'll be, you know, at a bar with friends and somebody will be like, hey, man, can I buy you a shot? I'm a huge fan of Friday Night Lights. And I'm like, dude, like, I, no. I, I, well, sorry, I'm uh, not that guy anymore. Well, that's funny because like I grew up in New York City in Gramercy Park. It's the furthest thing from West Texas mm. that there is. And so 
often too, if I'm in any situation where people want to know about Angela or the show or anything, and it's like, wait, you're not from Texas. I'm like, no, I'm from the east side of New York City. I had never been, I, you know, so it, it, it's it's fun when you get mistaken for your character. Your grandfather or your great-grandfather created DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, my grandfather started DC Comics and he basically died broke and unknown until recently the comic book world did honor him and gave him a place in the Hall of Fame, the Comic Book Hall of Fame, which I love. Right. Yeah, he he created DC, meaning he, at the time, which was 1929, 30-something-ish, I, I would have to really look. But at the time, there were just comic strips. That was all that existed. Comic books didn't exist. So he basically, long story short, took the idea of turning it into books that were monthly with artists. It was like a startup basically at the time. So he was constantly struggling to get funds to do this new big idea. And it became DC Comics. He got bought out very early by much smarter people who (laughs) saw the long game and they've done very well. Yeah, they, I I think so. they've got a couple movies coming out here. They do. I don't know if you've heard of Superman, but anyway, he didn't have the talent of seeing the long game. So unfortunately, but he, yeah, he started comic books and created DC. Pretty it's nuts. kind of a Tesla story, you know. It's kind of like everything in Dana's life, though. If you hang, I, As I said at the start of this <laughs> interview, Dana's one of the coolest people you ever meet because Dana's got a million and one stories. And we literally just hit the tip of the iceberg here. We'll probably have her back on some point later in the show. And she can tell you Definitely. about the night she had dinner with uh, Fidel Castro. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> that one. We have we have Andy Warhol. You guys, there's sto- oh, yeah. stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stories upon stories. We'll have you back on at some point and talk about all that stuff. But Dana, thank you so much for joining us. It's always thank a pleasure you. seeing you. I love you so much. And it was just awesome to have you on and just to have the three of us on together. Love you guys so much. I love you too. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you. Guys, that's it for episode 19. But join us next time when we unpack episode 20 with special guest, executive producer, and writer, David Hudgens. But until then, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.